I'm Brandon Hull, and it's time for Freelance to Founder. And I remember the investor deck saying something like, we've been growing 100% every month, but it was like, month one was $1,000, month two was $2,000, month three was $4,000. So even though it's like, you know, four or five months in, where it's like, we're at $16,000 a month, 100% growth every month for five months, $16,000 is not that much. I mean, I was living on credit cards for a lot of my expenses, and Dave was on what was left of his student loan. But yeah, <laughs> it's good times. Welcome to Freelance to Founder, where I uncover the full stories of freelancers and solopreneurs who've scaled their businesses to something much bigger than themselves. Before we begin, I really want you to stick around to the very end of today's show. I've got a programming note for you about next week's episode that I really want you to hear before just diving into that episode when it goes live next week. Last week, we shared the story of Reagan Cook and Ryan Torres, founders of Bear Watches, two guys you wouldn't have pegged could pull off starting and scaling a watch company. Nothing in their background suggested we should have seen it. This week, a somewhat similar story. You'll hear my conversation with Shane Snow, founder of Contently.com. Now, his role has evolved significantly since the company first got started between him and some fellow friends. He's a fascinating man. He's a former university student of a past guest we've had on, Stuart Draper, founder of StuKent.com. He's a master journalist, like one of our past guests, Scott Keyes of Scott's Cheap Flights. But mostly he's one of those people you come across in life who sees something that could be hard or could be foreign to him and thinks, I could probably do that. This is a great story of seeing an opportunity that requires more than you know how to build. Hard lessons learned, steady successes, struggles, huge momentum, funding rounds from investors, and at the close, Shane shares his one principle, his one habit, and his one person as part of our three-in-one segment. So without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Shane Snow of Contently.com. Whether you want to travel more or communicate better with international clients, you need to try Babbel. I've used Babbel's courses and you can do the same in order to learn real life conversation skills in a different language, order food, ask for directions, or speak to clients without having to use translation apps. Right now, get 60% off your Babbel subscription. This is only for our listeners at babbel.com slash freelance. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash freelance, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L.com slash freelance. Rules and restrictions apply. Mr. Shane Snow, thank you so much for joining me. It's great to have you on Freelance to Founder today. Brandon, thank you so much for having me. You, uh, we just discovered moments ago that you were a former student of one of our past guests, uh, Stuart Draper. So we have a really, really uh, interesting worlds colliding type of moment here, but I'm sure he'll love to hear that you were on the show as well. It's it's a small world. So and where Stu and I met is in Idaho, which is, you know, it, it's a whole state, but it's a pretty small place. But it's funny when, you know, here in New York, where I live now, when people find out I'm from Idaho, they'll say, oh, do you know Jim Johnson? Like, yeah, I know Jim Johnson from Idaho. There's a million people there. That still, <laughs> but uh, right. but yeah, Stu and I, uh, we, we met at school and um, he's a great guy, great marketer, has built a great business. So yeah, it's, it's funny that you guys uh, know each other. And of course, he dropped some knowledge on the podcast. Of course, of course. Well, uh, um, I'm, I'm excited to have you on because you are 
You remind me of uh, a recent guest that we've had on, very recent guest that we had on um, as well, Scott Keys from cheap, uh, scottscheapflights.com, because your backgrounds. Um, Scott was a journalist um, originally and had a passion for that. It wasn't that he was bored with it, wasn't that he dis- disliked it or anything like that, but Scott's cheap flights just kind of emerged and became his thing. And journalism is still this passion for him. It's still important to him. And um, similar, similar things can be said about you. And we haven't even gotten into the show here yet, by the way. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I keep having these uh, wonderful moments where guests' backstories are similar. And it's kind of neat when, uh, when that's the case. But Well, the thing that I like about the path of uh, journalism as an entry point into entrepreneurship is there's so many things that are incumbent on you as a founder of a company or as a business person that fit in this sort of weird category of hustle and proactivity and getting people to tell you things they don't want to tell you and finding out information. <laughs> well said. And that is, uh, that's what you learn to do as a journalist. There's a lot of other things, you know, and journalism doesn't set you up to be a good business person, but it does set you up to find out information, to talk to people, to investigate and hunt things down, which ends up being very key to starting a business. Well said, well said. So the Hatch Institute is an important endeavor uh, that you're involved in. But today we're primarily going to talk about, well, we're not primarily going to talk about, we're the business at the heart of what we're talking about is Contently, which you are one of the original founder uh, of Contently, uh, now the chairman um, of Contently. And it's been around a number of years, has been a tremendous success. So why don't we start there? And then we'll incorporate all of these elements that make up who okay. Shane Snow is uh, as we go. Sure. But, um, as far as Contently goes, what can you share about wh- where the business is today um, even though you're not necessarily involved in the minutia of the day-to-day, but what can you share about where Contently is today so we can go back in time and, and see if we should have ever seen this coming uh, sure. out of Shane? So the business is nine years in. You know, the early days, there was no revenue, no anything. But after a couple of years, we started making money. Now, nine years in, we're in the kind of the mid eight figures in terms of revenue. Um, I, I can't really disclose exactly how much. But uh, the, the number that I'm the most proud of is one of the components of the business is we help freelance writers, photographers, editors, video producers get work. We've paid over $50 million in wages to freelancers over the last roughly seven years. Absolutely, absolutely incredible. Um, and, you know, it's an enterprise platform. It's not one of these, you know, it's not like a, a, an Upwork or something like that. It's not... It's not a Fiverr by any means. So it's not one of these outlets where a freelancer might participate and feel like they're giving their best but getting paid the worst in a lot of ways. It's more of an enterprise type of platform, you know? So it's, a, it's an entirely different offering and a different, different uh, avenue, I guess you could say, for freelancers to, uh, to monetize their work, their talent, right? So what most of the, our customers, which are our businesses, like big brands, you know, American Express, Pepsi, those kinds of companies, what most of our companies, our customers are after is a, a mix of things, but it's software for managing content and marketing. Uh, but as a part of that, if you need to extend your team, you have a bunch of writers writing your blog or doing social media, or you need video crews to go cover a conference, we offer you from a pool of professional talent, freelancers that you can hire, and then basically work with them as if they were contractors for your team. So it's, it is different than like an Upwork or um, Elance sort of thing. The nice thing is, is once you get hired by one of our customers, chances are you're going to do a lot of ongoing work for them for a long time. And so whereas there's lots of people that are in the Contently universe, freelancers uh, you know, available for work, 
at a given time, you know, some 10, 15% of them are working, but those people are getting a lot of good wages for, and we enforce the wages too. That That's a big deal to me is, you know, not letting anything degrade into a, a wage that you can't live on. Um, and that's, that's one of the things we promise to our clients is, hey, we're promising our freelancers that if they do a good job, they're going to make really good wages, which means we're promising you that they're going to do a good job. And they are, in some ways, afraid to do a bad job because they don't want to lose what ends up being a very good gig. Right, right. Uh, I like those types of marketplaces, two-sided marketplaces where both feel lifted as opposed to one, you know, they're a little bit, you, you need both parties at the table, but but it's always feels a little bit slanted. And I like this kind of, I'm going to call it a marketplace. I know it's not entirely like that, but um, but you've got to bring two two uh, two teams to the table, right? And and on good terms, mutually beneficial terms. So um, Contently, it's been around nine years now. It's been around a long time. And when I look at your background at what you were doing nine or 10 years ago, I st- as opposed to others, I still kind of scratch my head trying to figure out where the genesis for the Contently idea, where it came from. Can you share that? And then we're going to go back further in time okay. to, to, to whether we should have ever seen this coming. But so it's like where memento. Was the, we're, we're going back in chunks. Yeah. <laughs> where, where, yeah. So where was the genesis for Contently to begin with? When did you start feeling like this needs to exist and I'm going to be the one that, that helps bring it to life? So there are a few things that came together. I think like with a lot of the work that I've done, and I think a lot of things that people do that end up being fairly innovative is there's lots of factors that kind of swirl around until I guess no one can see you can you can't hear me making the hand motions of the swirling motion. Lots of factors swirl around that end up leading to uh, some sort of breakthrough idea. The the factors that were swirling around were I, I was uh, I just gotten out of journalism school. I was writing about business and technology. Lots of, of uh, startups like Foursquare and Tumblr and these companies that uh, at the time were just emerging and being becoming very exciting. And uh, and that got me really interested in actually living in that world and actually starting a company like that. Uh, I'd been freelancing and, and doing various tech things for a long time, but I really wanted to build an important company in the back of my head as I was, I was writing about these companies. But the other thing that happened is it was during the financial crisis in, the, uh, in 08, 09, and a lot of journalists who had just graduated like me or who were editing my pieces at newspapers or magazines were... Uh, kind of being thrown out on the street and having to become freelancers because uh, a lot of companies were doing layoffs. The New York Times says layoffs, but they still need people to write for them. So they hire a bunch of those people back as freelancers. It's basically what was happening. And so essentially, I mean, it, it's a, to condense the, the story or the mythology of how Contently emerged, there were a couple of, uh, of these trends that you know my part, business partners and I were seeing. One was it's all these freelancers with a lot of really good credentials, professional experience that have to strike out on their own. But then there's also this sort of new class of client for those freelancers, which is every company in the world that wants to make a blog or eventually a whole content strategy. They want to talk to people. They want to educate their customers. They want to build relationships with customers, not just through, you know, find me on Google or, you know, here's our advertisement, but through giving um, education or entertainment otherwise uh, engaging with people. And those kinds of businesses, you know, a lot of the, the big brands that advertise on TV, they were in the market to hire the kinds of folks that I went to journalism school with, or the kinds of folks that have been laid off from you know, New York One TV news or whatever. So seeing all those things kind of became the genesis of this idea, which initially was, let's connect these displaced journalists with brands that are becoming publishers 
And then eventually that evolved as the brands who were becoming publishers needed more than just talent, people to, you know, to write words and to shoot video. They also needed tools for project management, measuring their content marketing, how it was doing, and on and on and on. And so the company turned into a software company primarily with that journalism marketplaces component. But it started around sort of recognizing these different trends that were happening and these unmet needs, uh, unmet needs on a couple sides of, you know, party A needs X thing and has Y thing, you know, needs writers, has money. Party B, the writers have great skills, need money, and we, we wanted to connect them. That was originally the, uh, the thing we observed and tried to do. <laughs> the idea is brilliant. Um, and, uh, and, it, and, and yet you're also not alone in the idea of bringing two parties to the table who need one another, but one does all. not want to work for permanently as an employee, the other per se. And it seems to me that that's always the challenge with marketplaces like this is the chicken, the egg piece. Um, maybe that's not the right analogy to use, but you know, who, we used it a lot. Yeah. 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 Who do you bring to the table first? Do I got to, if I'm going to attract some of these larger brands with quality writers, videographers, whatever photographers, um, I got to have those videographers, photographers. Well, they're not going to come unless they know who they're going to be working for potentially. So um, I want to get there, but I'm going to just lay it up right there and set it up and not address it yet. Okay. We're going to come back and address that one. Um, the issue I actually want to address first is, uh, again, I go back to, into your past and outside of one, maybe story that you may not know that I'm aware of in your past. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, <laughs> Ominous. how, how could we, how could we have seen this entrepreneurial, uh, trait in you, where would we in your past have seen this entrepreneurial trait? Was it fantasticcards.com? <laughs> oh, potentially? wow. I can't believe you know about that. <laughs> or, or is it something else? Like when you look back and you say, oh, yeah, I, it's not a big surprise that I ultimately started contently, but how, where would we have seen the, the, this DNA evident in you? Um, so, fantasticcards.com was my first online business. And that was when I was a sophomore and junior in high school. Uh, that would have been uh, been evidence. Although what what was interesting about that is so it was, it was an online greeting card site that I started as a competitive site to my buddy's online greeting card site. It was like late nineties, and uh, my buddy started this site that was like if it's someone's birthday, send them an email with this birthday card. And his birthday cards were like kind of like badly drawn, and so I said I could draw some better birthday cards than that. So I started a competitor, and then our other friend started a competitor, and we had this trio of greeting card sites. And every time you sent someone a greeting card, ads kind of went with it, essentially. <laughs> and, uh, and we made some money. So here's these high school kids making thousands of dollars. Because the early days of the internet, you could make so much money off of advertising. And, you know, my best month uh, as a junior in high school was like $6,000, which is amazing as a junior in high school in Idaho. Um, that same amount of uh, traffic to my greeting cards today would have made me like 60 cents. You know, it's, it's just <laughs> amazing how things were back then. Right. But what that was is, yeah, it was kind of my first stab at working for myself and, uh, and combining kind of creative curiosity and uh, passion for technology. And, but also, I mean, I'd been picking strawberries as a day job down the street at a farmer's uh, farm. I'd been driving pizza delivery for Domino's. I didn't like those things. And so making something for myself was really exciting. The thing that happened is my parents got kind of worried about it. Early days of the internet, our kid is getting checks for thousands of dollars. What is he doing? Is this legal? <laughs> oh no, is our son going to not know how to work hard? Um, 
So they eventually shut that down, and that's that's a the whole thing. That's still kind of like a weird subject to bring up <laughs> in my family. Uh, but because if of only, that, I, if only they had fantastic cards fulfill its <laughs> potential. <laughs> well, the thing that's funny is uh, is one of the uh, my friends that had the other greeting card site. He made a ton of money doing this stuff, and then he uh, his parents were like, "You have to invest your money uh, because like this is you know you're 16 years old." Uh, invest your money, do something with it, keep, hang on to it for college. So he invested it all in tech companies. And then the dot-com bubble burst, he lost all of it. Oh, so that probably would have happened to me too. Uh, but either <laughs> way, in disguise. yeah, either way, it, it was definitely the bug that bit me. Um, and, but there were a few years where I wasn't doing any of that sort of thing. I was working for the gas company and I was driving more pizzas. But, uh, but when I went to college, I said, nah, if there's any way that I can work for myself, then that will give me the, I can hopefully create the freedom to work on my terms and then I can study on my terms and I can kind of forge my own path. I do think like when you ask where that came from, who could have guessed it? Uh, my parents should have seen it coming. So my dad is an engineer and kind of a hacker. And um, so he's always, he, he built a car from scratch. He helped my brother and I build go-karts and tree forts. And, you know, we're always helping fix houses and stuff. And so he's always taking things apart, showing us how they work, and having us help him put them back together as object lessons. But that's what did he you, loved doing. Did you not? Did you not feel like that was unique? Did you not feel because your father did it, and because you had done this a little bit even as a teenager? So did it just never occur to you that you can't do this? I mean, I feel like I encounter too many people, even in even kids today, um, who it doesn't occur to them that I can do that. You know, they feel like things are daunting, or they feel feel like things require too much advanced skill in whatever, uh, you know, skill that they have to have to, to do the thing. Um, it sounds like for you and maybe even your dad, that the idea of something just not being doable, just didn't really cross your minds. That's interesting. Cause I, I don't, I don't know that I've quite thought about that in that, in the way that you're framing it, but you're right. Or at least no one's ever posed a question like that to me before. You're right that I grew up with, you know, my dad was always, it's like the toilet's broken and he's like, we will figure out a way to fix it. And part of it, I mean, I think growing up, like when I think back, I'm like, well, it's Idaho and there's not a whole lot of hardware stores and my dad's an engineer. So of course that was the way, but that's not really common. And I, I do, when I think about it, I can't remember a time when my dad was like, nope, got to hire someone to do it. Um, and a lot of the times, I mean, he was very good at, at what he did. So it's not like we had this dilapidated house, but a lot of the times, and he got this from his dad too. My grandpa was actually more of a hacker. My grandpa would duct tape things together. My dad would be like, no, we're going to do it the right way, but like, we'll figure out a clever way to do it. So I think I did have that thing, like the, the switch of, uh, you know, you, you, there's something in the way of you figuring something out uh, was never uh, flipped on for me. Like, I, I, I do think you're right that, that that's something that I should be grateful for having had that implanted in me from a young age. And I, but cause I don't think it's, I don't think it's necessarily assumed that everybody has that gene uh, in mm -hmm. them. You know, sometimes my people might defer to too hard, don't do it or too hard, hire somebody to do it or figure somebody, something out, you know, that, that doesn't involve me solving the problem yeah. with know-how I don't yet have. Well, there's and, a flip side to it too. That was frustrating to me as a, as a kid and a teenager and for a while until I, you know, I, I knew a little better, but my dad would, if it, would take him 20 hours to fix something or make something and he could pay someone for one hour to do it, you know, a pro, he would always do it himself. And part of it was we were kind of poor because um, we had a lot of kids and, you know, that money doesn't spread out very well across seven kids. But, uh, but part of it was, I think, 
just this is how he likes doing things. So I think as I've gotten older, I've subscribed a little more to find the balance between uh, do it. You know, you can always figure it out, whatever it is, but find the balance between doing it yourself and outsourcing or hiring or whatever when it's strategically uh, worthwhile. And that is a little bit more of an entrepreneurial mindset than just like an engineering mindset. You know, my dad, he wanted to figure out it. He's like, I will figure it out and do it. Maybe for money reasons, maybe for because this is what he liked doing. I'm more like, I will figure out how to do it because I want to solve a problem, want to grow. I kind of want this entrepreneurial momentum. My dad's not an entrepreneur. He, he, he likes engineering problems. Right. But he's a problem solver, yes. <laughs> which, yes. which I think is a... Uh, an attribute of many entrepreneurs is they see a problem, they see an inefficiency, and they want to they want to solve that. They want to fill Absolutely. that gap, as opposed to just waiting for somebody else to do it. They feel like might as well be me. I guess uh, you know I'm just as well suited as anybody to to uh, to solve that problem, right? Yeah, you know another thing that occurs to me that I must have learned very early on in this period was my dad was good at being untethered from like his way of doing things. It's like, well, that didn't work. Let's find another way. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs, especially first-time entrepreneurs, and me included, fall into this trap of, well, this is my idea for solving this problem. I recognize the problem. I've identified this thing that people haven't really articulated. Here's my idea for how to solve it. And then you stay stuck on that first initial idea for way too long. And it ends up being counterproductive where, you know, part of this hacker engineer mindset that uh, my dad very much had was, well, we can't bypass the heating vent this way what if we found a pipe and we did this? Or what if I took apart this thing and we did this this other way? So it was always about actually solving the problem, not about his ego being right about how to solve sure, the problem. Sure. Boy, we could, we could probably talk about this one for hours because I think there's all, <laughs> kinds of, there's all kinds of lessons that are, that are woven into this, whether somebody is maybe a little too stubborn and ram-headed and needs to be the person who solves the problem. Uh, versus just letting somebody in the in the name of efficiency and time, letting somebody who's already an ex- ex- expert uh, step in and, and solve the problem for you. We maybe where this is going to emerge in some of the other ways we talk about contently. But it's interesting though that uh, it sounds like in an early age you did have that piece in you that said, "I can do this. Um, this is not this is not difficult." Um, because the other thing that it leads to to me is is how one perceives risk. Um, you know, if you think about, again, if we fast forward to the future or to the, to a little bit more in the future, 10 years ago, when you founded Contently, um, there's a lot of people who, who sit on their hands and say, there should be a service that does this. There should be a product that does this and never have the inclination to, uh, to build it. And part of it is again, because they don't think it's doable, but the other part of it is there's just a, they don't feel, they feel like the, the, the cost, the time, the effort. What if they fail? What if nobody likes it? What if they're the only one that thinks this way? Um, there's that risk side of it, risk of uh, personal credibility, risk of money, risk of loss of time and that sort of thing. And um, I wonder a little bit if I feel like I've learned in, in numerous other conversations that the idea of how you assess risk is a little bit different when you have your mindset as well. I'd be interested in hearing your opinions on how you how you've, how you've perceived risk over the years as well. Yeah, I mean, this ties into a lot of things, I think. Another thing we could talk about for a long time, there is an element of if you have the privilege that comes with uh, a lot of people who know that if everything falls apart, they have people that love them. You know, they, they live in a society that has some sort of safety net for them. You know, there's unemployment insurance or whatever, or you have a family you can go back to. You have those kinds of things, which not everyone has. And I recognize that I have been blessed with that it makes you a little, a little safer to, to go after risk. Things feel a little less risky. 
I mean, I think in psychology, it's the same way. If you feel like you have uh, secure, if you have secure attachments to you know people who love you and care about you, as a kid, as a teenager, you can go out and kind of venture on your own, knowing that your parents are always there for you. That same kind of thing. I think also that I might uh, suffer slash benefit from a little bit of hypomania, which is hypomania is basically being a little bit on the manic spectrum, but not so far that you are like what people would call crazy. You're a detriment um, to yourself, right? Yeah. yeah. You're a threat or danger to yourself, right? So, and uh, hypomania, like being manic is like, you're excited, you're up, you're like, sometimes, you know, that gets a little awkward, but um, there's, there's some, you know, really good stuff about uh, the history of explorers and entrepreneurs and risk takers often have this gene that makes them believe and it's like and you're slightly on the manic spectrum you believe naturally you don't even need any persuasion that you can beat the odds um and that is uh you know anyone that's like i'm gonna go sail around the horn of africa or whatever like no one's ever done i'm gonna see if there's sea monsters there you got to kind of believe that you can beat the insane odds and actually overcome that and that comes with a little bit of, of mania so i think i have a little of that um so I'd say some of it is the, you know, the nurture of my parents making me feel like it's safe to taste risks. Some of that is a little bit of my, my DNA, my personality. And then some is, I think that there's, there's plenty of research out there that says that on the whole, entrepreneurs are not necessarily crazy risk takers. Um, they're calculated risk takers. And I, I think when you start to think of, um, of ventures that you go out on as explorations where you're learning things and you're iterating and kind of a lot of the stuff that, that they talk about and, you know, uh, lean startup kind of things, then it makes the risk of failure actually much less because really you're getting, you're after feedback um, before you ever can, can fail. It's like the, the analogy of when you're landing an airplane on a, um, on a aircraft carrier, if you fail, like if you don't do it, like it's over, you have failed. But if you practice in a flight simulator, if you don't land on the flight simulator aircraft character, it's okay. It's uh, carrier's feedback. You've just learned something. It's a that data helps point. You get better. Exactly. That's right. All so it I think is, a lot is of one more point. That way. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Excuse me. I I I definitely think that there is a uh, a trait in people who uh, have accomplished big things that they're able to properly weigh the what if, the negative what ifs. And, and maybe sometimes they overemphasize the positive what ifs, but, but to a certain extent they have to, because there are certain, uh, barriers you're going to have to break through adversity. You're going to have to break through and maybe even naysayers that you're going to have to, um, break free of who might want to pull you back to the normal Absolutely. crowd. Right. And no doubt that you, you learned that in your early days at contently, but before contently was even a dream for you, you, you go off to college and you, you work with, uh, 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 Stuart Draper briefly, and then, yeah. and then and then going to Columbia from there. As you're wrapping up your your time at Columbia University, what was the big plan? What was the what was the first job you pictured, and what was the plan for those next couple of years? Uh, the the first like the dream job I pictured was being a, a magazine writer for Wired magazine. So I could write about business and technology and innovation. That was my dream. So the the first kind of thing out of college was starting to write for that kind of, uh, write about that beat, basically, for blogs. So I, Mashable was the first, um, basically, job that I got out of, uh, out of grad school, journalism school. And so the plan was to work my way up to Wired and, and ideally become a columnist or a feature writer or whatever. And I did end up writing for them, but that was one track. And then on the other side, I had, um, and this might actually play into your last question, too. On the other side, I had 
this growing interest in starting some sort of media tech business. I was writing about these guys, like I said, um, but I, I thought, you know, if I can do both things, if I can write about these things, use that as a way to actually figure out what to build as a, as a founder, then um, I can get smart, I can build a smart company, and then that can help subsidize me writing about things that don't necessarily pay off in themselves writing-wise, but are things that I want to learn, that I want to do, and then that eventually does pay off in reputation, which helps me build my business. So this kind of like two-track uh, back-and-forth thing, that was the, the plan. Sort of a more naive, uh, sort of crude version of that was what was boiling in my head, but those were the two things. I was like, I have to make those things play off each other. That's what I want to do, which was is the kind se- of what happened. That's exactly what happened. It feels like <laughs> to me. What, with the second option, um, did you look at at uh, properties like Mashable with uh, Pete Cashmore? Um, and I think it was Kevin Kelly of Wired. Did you look at these and think, was it kind of going back to the whole Fantastic Arts thing? Like, I could do that. Like, Pete, Pete built something great with Mashable, but I could do that. Um, there's no reason why there couldn't be another publication that is got a different angle to it, a different... Uh, a different beat that that it focuses on. Did you just sort of feel like I already love this? I'm, I'm well trained in it, and maybe more than the average person who wants to start up a business. Uh, I actually have a background in journalism. Did you just feel like I could do it? In a way, I think with a pure media business like that, you know, where you're publishing and you're getting paid for what you're publishing, I had a little bit of a well. Okay, so there's two things. One is I didn't feel like I was a good enough journalist to play at the level of how many competitors there were. You know, Mashable had 50 competitors and half of them were staffed with people who were way better writers than me. And I was lucky to be writing for Mashable. I figured there were a few years for me to actually gain the expertise where I would feel confident that I could compete at that content level. From the business side, I think I was in a better place than a lot of those people that were starting these tech blogs. But I also, I've come to recognize that with certain categories of business, being in the water at the right time when a wave comes makes it a lot easier. So when Pete Cashmore started Mashable, he was not, you know, and I think he'd admit this, he's not that great of a journalist. You know, he's a blogger, he's like 19. He uh, he was smart, he was sharp, but he didn't have like a lot of experience to make, connect a lot of dots and to have that insightful of analysis on what he's writing about. But because he was building this blog at a time when there were very few blogs, especially on that topic. And then suddenly there's a surge in interest. He rose with the tide and he gained a lot of expertise really quickly. Then was able to gather a lot of people that helped him build that business. And I think Wired was the same way in the magazine world in the 90s when it it started, um, where starting a Wired magazine competitor now would be the barrier to that entry would be very high. Uh, But there's certain types of businesses that I think are like that. I think a lot of businesses are like that. So what I was interested in, you know, when I thought about questions like that is, What's the intersection between right time, right place, and my expertise where I can be in front of a wave like a surfer that you know doesn't have to paddle that hard before they can catch a really big wave? So that's kind of what I was looking at. And that's where Contently came from, is really recognizing these trends of the kind of this revolution in freelancing, all these people who are really highly skilled, not just the outsourcing people, but really highly skilled creative freelancers having to strike out on their own, growing group of them, and this other wave of brands becoming publishers those two things kind of collided. And it was like, it doesn't matter if we're not actually that good yet. If we position ourselves in the right spot, we can ride this wave. And then by doing so, we'll gain a lot more expertise, credibility, experience than we would if, uh, if there wasn't a trend sort of pushing us like wind in our sails. 
Have you ever noticed that many of the problems people call in with on this show can be solved by hiring someone? Sometimes you need a full-fledged team, other times maybe just a simple assistant, or an expert in something you're not great at. Whatever your reason for hiring, we recommend you take a look at LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. As you may know already, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. And LinkedIn Jobs makes the process of finding the perfect teammate easy and intuitive. Hiring is always easy when you have access to so many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours when using LinkedIn Jobs. I've used it myself, and it was so simple. In fact, I've made multiple hires using LinkedIn Jobs. And did I mention, by the way, it's free to business owners like me and you. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash freelance. That's linkedin.com slash freelance to post your job for free or click the link in our show description. Terms and conditions apply. You know, working from home is mostly great, but there are some days when I realize I haven't left my house or even my chair like all day. Have you been there? Getting outside to exercise or making a trip to the gym are just harder now that my office is just a flight of stairs away. If you're stuck in the same rut as me, then you should try Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W. With the Hydro rower and 20 minutes a day, getting a full body workout is so much easier. Hydro can work up to 86% of your muscles in just 20 minutes for an insane effective home workout. That's because Hydro pairs the effectiveness of rowing with the power of technology to connect you with over 5,000 video trainings, classes, and workouts. And get ready to get out from behind your home desk because after a few months of daily rowing with Hydro, your partner's going to want to take you out for a night on the town to show you off. This spring, join the growing rowing community at Hydro. Head over to Hydro.com and use code FREELANCE to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com and promo code freelance to save $400 hydro.com promo code freelance or just click the link in our show description I've never heard that metaphor used and yet it's so obvious and such a great one the idea Thanks. of you can't catch the wave unless you're in the water that almost sounds like a book at some point in time is <laughs> it's got to be because listen I think most uh, entrepreneurs who have even a few ounces of humility in them would recognize that you have to have a certain level of uh, tenacity and certain vision for what you want to accomplish. And you got to have cl clearly some sort of uh, funding plan in place, even uh -huh. if you don't make money from it. But ultimately, timing and connections that you make and so forth, these things that are sort of seem in, in hindsight serendipitous sometimes, um, those come into play as well. And to your point, if you're not in the water, the wave comes, you can either be on the shore watching that wave uh, crash and think, oh, what it'd be like to be out there right now? <laughs> or you can be amongst it, and, and I'm using still the term metaphorically, but uh, or you can be, a, you know, sort of in the mix, right? And then who knows what can happen if you're in the mix? But if you're not in the mix, well, then you know, you know, you'll you'll just always wonder. The it's it's the what ifs. What 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 could have happened? You know, but yeah, you know, I have a I have a cool example of someone that's also kind of in in this same sort of alumni network of you know from from school back in Idaho, Utah is uh, the founder of Stance Socks, like the, the sock company. Um, really cool guy. He had sold a couple of businesses and he, had, he took a very deliberate approach to identifying basically like the surfing wave for, uh, that he rode for building Stance Socks, which is an incredibly successful company. I would be surprised if it wasn't a billion dollar valuation at this point. 
Um, and basically he said this direct to consumer thing is going bananas, you know, because of Instagram in particular, all these products like, you know, buying your mattress online from Casper and buying luggage from away, these products that is like, there's no store you can get to. You can buy it online. It's these premium products. He identified this sort of category of things that was just about to blow up. And then he made a list of every possible consumer product you could think of and did this whole analysis, built all these Venn diagrams of it needs this thing and this thing and this thing in order for it to be something that could capture this wave that's going to happen because of uh, the direct-to-consumer Instagram, all that thing. And the top-ranked one was socks. And so he said, I'm going to start a sock company. Eventually, they did build stores, but it's an online sock company, premium product, all these things. And then he said, in the next 10, I'm going to invest in whoever it is that comes up with that idea first. So he did. And, and this guy is I mean, super smart and super successful and deserves every bit of it. But it wasn't this uh, crazy risk. It was this deliberate calculation of studying the water and then positioning his surfboard so that he could be there before anyone else could get to it. And you can't catch up to someone like that very easily once they have that momentum. Going back to what you said a few minutes ago, that the plan, plan A and the plan B, actually, that's sort of what exactly happened. You're writing for a few years, uh, for, yeah, for a few years in several publications. And um, from my understanding, you're starting to not just do the work, you're starting to look around about the nature of the work that's being done. Like you have fellow journalists or friends that are in the work and, and you're seeing the challenges that they have, the struggles that they have with portfolios or even maintaining things as a business from a freelancer standpoint. Um, but from a chronology standpoint, chronology standpoint, um, when did the gear start to turn that there's got to be some way, either a company or a platform or a system to help people like me and my colleagues here stay on top of all of this? Yeah. So at least from the freelancers perspective, right? Right. So while I was in journalism school, there was a grant competition for come up with the journalism business. You can get a grant. And I pitched a job board for freelancers uh, to that competition and didn't get the grant, which I'm glad about. But I was already recognizing that they were warning us, a lot of you are going to graduate and be freelancers. Good luck. And so I recognize that there's, there's some opportunity there to help you know, with that and potentially to build a business around that. So that was in my head. And you know, it was however long later, you know, a year later when, um, maybe less than that, when my business partner, one of the other guys from Idaho with uh, the greeting card site, his was fungrams.com. And mine was fantastic cards. I even ripped off the name. Poor guy. <laughs> anyway, we became business partners on Contently. Uh, we'd been friends all these years. He, uh, he came to me and started talking to me about uh, the brands becoming publishers thing and how he was trying to hire bloggers and all that. And it connected to that, well, you know, all these writers are now freelancers. All these journalists you know, need a job board. What if the job board actually was for freelancers to connect with businesses? So it kind of came together that way, but it really didn't... It was a side project. It was one of many side projects, you know, and I was, I had just turned down a full-time job as an, an editor at Inc. Magazine um, to do journalism full-time. And instead, I, I kind of wanted to dip my toes in different places. I figured, you know, Inc. would take me down one track, but I really wanted to go down a slightly different track. And, um, and so I want to keep my hands in different pies, but it meant that I was a freelancer. It meant that the life was a little more of a struggle. Uh, so this thing that Joe, my then friend, now business partner, uh, kind of proposed we start thinking about was like one of several side projects. Another side project I had actually was this random shopping game with uh, the other guy who became partner in Contently. We built this, this game on Facebook called Panda Mouse. 
that uh, it would take too long to explain. But it was this random game that got randomly popular in Sweden. So I had various things going on, but how contently became real, how it went from this sort of thought experiment and these experiments with uh, the thought experiment turned into a real experiment with actually kind of creating a job board, how that turned into the real business was when we, we identified that this need was real for both of these parties to connect. And then we made a list of, uh, on both sides, the businesses that want to be publishers and the freelance writers, eventually freelance everything, uh, creative. What's the list of things that are hard in their lives besides what we're trying to do? We're trying to connect them, help them you know, trade work. But besides that, what's hard for your life as a freelance journalist? Well, finding work is the hardest one. But getting your clients to pay you within three months is actually really hard. Um, doing your taxes is really hard. Figuring out your expenses is really hard. Building a website, promoting your work and all that's really hard. And, and there's like umpteen other things. And then on the business side, it's like, well, if you're trying to do content marketing, finding the talent is hard, but then also workflow is hard and editing is hard and you know, knowing where to publish is hard and tracking what happens is hard. So by making that list, we identified, well, here's opportunities for us to build things that we could get paid for. This is how this software company eventually came about. But on the freelance side, I mean, there's more to it than this. There's like years of, of kind of learnings that went around into this. But we realized that if we could help freelancers with some of those other aspects of their lives, we could build a good reputation with them that they would want to work with us and our clients. And that helped us get more clients and better clients. But also, um, we, we could actually kind of build different aspects of our business. So for example, with the portfolio thing you alluded to, we realized that so many great writers are bad at building websites. But having a portfolio of your past work is really key to helping you get future work. So we built a little tool that helps you build a really nice looking portfolio very easily. And that helped a bunch of freelancers help themselves get work. They started talking, telling everyone that Catelli is great. Some of those people wanted to be freelancers for us. So we brokered work with our clients. But then also, we could look at the data of everything you've written about and figure out what you write about, which became a feature that we could build into our platform, which then helped our clients. So it was this sort of constant process of, of developing, but it was around the needs of the constituents we had and figuring out, A, which ones of those can we do easily enough that can help us help them and you know, build a good relationship, and B, which of those things can help us actually build our business too, and sometimes there's overlap. So um, absolutely fascinating that, that the way you sort of iterated on needs and problems that the freelancer life entails. Um, from a platform standpoint, we're, we're, you're, you're describing how the platform sort of uh, evolved. But from the earliest days, how long was it just an idea that you would kick around, tinker with, uh, imagine what needed to be included versus building a, a version, you know, the infamous MVP, you know, where you at least this is what we're going to do for now. And then we'll just iterate the platform as it goes along. How much of that was built versus how much did you were you guys just ideating uh, or whatever probably, word you want to use there? Yeah, I, I think it was summer when we started ideating. And it was I remember it was December 10th when we, uh, we put out the very first version, which was very bad, we immediately deleted the code base after like three weeks and made a new version. So whatever, if we say summer is June or July to December, four or five months of noodling. And then, you know, is um, a little bit of time to develop that initial thing, but it didn't take very long. So and by the way, you, you did a little bit of um, tinkering with website development like as an internship many, many, yep. many years ago. So were you guys building this yourselves or were you farming it out? How were you guys actually physically building it? First version we farmed out. 
second version, Dave, the guy who built the, the shopping game with me, and Joe, the, the business, the Fungrams guy, and I all contributed to the code base. So Dave was the main, he was the main tech guy. And then Joe and I, there's no code left from probably all, any of the three of us at this point. We have a lot of, of really good programmers now. Um, but we all basically built the second version together. And I had, yeah, I, I had done computer programming in high school and, uh, and in college. I was originally a computer science major. And then I, I dropped that. Um, so I had enough. And, and I actually like being able to, to know my way around that. It helps me make better decisions and then be very appreciative and supportive of the developers that I do work with. Uh, I still do a little bit. Actually, my own sites, I will prefer to kind of in the way that my dad does, I guess. If it's less than a day's worth of work to code something, sometimes I like to do that on a Saturday. If it's more than that, then I will hire someone. Um, but I like being able to understand that a little bit because I do think it helps, uh, especially in that MVP phase where like, paying money is kind of a drag before you know if it's going to work out. Well, yeah, plus you have an appreciation for this feature, what the scale of this feature is going to be. It's one thing to want a feature to exist in a uh, software tool. It's another thing to have some degree of reasonable appreciation for the scale of this feature versus this feature, right? And the payoff for all that effort. Um, Okay. (coughs) Excuse me. So the first version of Contently hits the streets. What kind of advance work did you do to get the word out that this platform existed? And how did you... Because, you know, again, uh, freelance work can sometimes be pennies, <laughs> um, you know, an article here, an article there. What did you do uh, to build the buzz for Contently in the earliest days so that you had a, a good surge of potential contributors as freelancers while also working on the brand side? Well, this is one of the kind of the key moments that made us realize that we really might be in front of one of those big waves is we, we built the first version of Contently where we, we had it built. Um, we outsourced it. And then we posted on a couple of freelance writing forums, you know, so like, you know, 2009, 2010, uh, you know, more people are doing forums than just Reddit. There's a lot of of forums now. It feels like Reddit is the only forum, but we posted on a couple of forums for writers and freelancers. And, uh, and we said, Hey, we heard about this company called contently. They are getting work for freelance writers. And day one, it was like 500 people signed up, you know, and by the end of the week, it was thousands. So, we kind of, I mean, it, it was a, felt like a happy accident, but we realized that we'd struck gold. There's a pain point here that uh, we've really zeroed in on. The thing that that immediately created a problem for, and one of the things we had to redevelop you know, what we'd uh, built because of was actually filtering out among those you know, thousands of people who'd signed up saying, yes, I want to write for money. So many of those were actually just work, make money from home on the internet types and not the trained professional journalist types that we had actually set out to you know, to try and recruit. The very ones you wanted to percent- really attract, really. Right. So a very small percentage of our users were actually the users that we wanted. So it created a different problem. How do you attract that right user base? And how do you filter? You know, if you say, hey, we have money to pay for jobs, lots of people apply for the job. So do you target, do you cast the wide net or do you cast a, a more narrow net? Do you, you know, do a filter thing? That's where ultimately, after a few iterations, this portfolio thing really paid off. Is uh, whether you're a you know new writer, not very good writer, not very well trained writer yet, you know you're on your way up, or you're an incredible writer. Your body of work will show um, kind of where you are along that spectrum. And either way, you need a portfolio if you're trying to make money as a writer. So we provide that tool, and then that allowed us to filter down. So. 
that was that part was easier than uh, gathering up the uh, the clients. You know, going to clients and gathering up that user base uh, was harder. That was more of a door to door sales. Like that's a metaphor, but you know, emailing people I know who have companies or no companies and trying to get meetings where we could show up. We put on you know the one tie we have and you know show up to their office and pitch them on this writer network that we're like we have three thousand writers and we know that probably 10 of them are actually good. But hey, this client's only going to need two. So for now, fine. We'll deal with the 3,000 writers. You know, we'll figure out how many of them are actually good. We just, we don't, we don't tell you that, uh, yeah, you know, we didn't say we have 3,000 great writers. We said we have 3,000 writers. So You have a library, you have a, a database of that many writers. Who was doing this work on the brand side um, of, among the, the group of you or, or early hires? Um, who was doing that brand work while the others were maybe working on what the community element for the freelancers was like. Yeah, we, we kind of all pitched in at first on, on a lot of these things. We would all go to sales meetings you know, in our spare time. And how it sort of striated out is Joe became the business and sales and finance guy. So he ended up doing a lot of the, uh, you know, the bigger meetings with potential clients. Dave was the product and tech guy. He would go to some meetings with clients. Uh, but he was mostly focused on that. And then I became the brand and marketing and writer community guy. And then eventually as we grew, had to hire people to do each of those, you know, doing three, four jobs, you hire three or four people eventually to run those. So we eventually did that. And that was a product of just kind of where our natural skill sets and interests lay. The nice thing was, and I think we got very lucky, is we all had a little bit of a background in business. We all had a little bit of a background or a lot of background in tech in the case of Dave. And uh, we're all great writers, at least, you know, for our age bracket and, and all of that. So we all had this sort of base level appreciation for what each of the partners was up against and how hard their job was. And so we could support them and we could provide input. And from our different points of view, slightly, you know, Dave's tech point of view was actually very useful in a lot of the brand and marketing stuff. Um, so we had that nice combination that I think helped us out a lot. And it could have gone, you know, another way, you know, Dave could have very well become the business guy. He studied business in grad school. Um, so he could have gone that direction, but we needed a tech person. And so he, he did that. And how did you guys figure out the, how did you guys figure out the, uh, the business modeling piece? Because the, the other element here is that you're taking in a certain dollar amount from the brands, you're the middleman and I'm providing a, a, it's not just literally a connection. It's the platform as well. Um, and you're bringing in the, the freelancers to the table and paying them as well. Who did the financial modeling on figuring out how that would, how you make sure that works and you're not upside down on it, you know, that first year yeah. or two? Oh, yeah. Um, Joe was primarily the, the finance guy. A lot of, in the early days, was a lot of what we did, actually, I, you know, it's, it's sort of a miracle that we didn't go belly up, you know, the first couple of years. We actually had... You know, eventually we hired a finance team and you know, we got good people to help us and to properly model that out. We, we had this really crazy case, uh, maybe 18 months in, where we're starting to be successful. We're brokering a lot of work. Well, our, our philosophy was, and I think this is a very good general business philosophy, is if you're taking money in the middle of an equation between two parties, you have to provide enough value that it's worth it. And so for the freelancers, we, uh, we realized that just getting them the gig was probably worth it, but maybe not in all cases, especially an ongoing gig. It's like we already made the connection. You know? um, the portfolios that we're giving those away for free, that's building up our database. But we realized that it's so hard as a freelancer to get paid on time. So we said one of the things that would justify 
us taking 15% from the middle of this transaction is if we paid you immediately and we collected from the client later. So, you know, PepsiCo pays all their contractors 90 days later. The freelancer, you might not be able to pay rent if that happens. So we'll pay you immediately as soon as you do the work, like the day you submit your project, and then we'll deal with Pepsi. And this is really going to sound really naive, but basically what happened is after we started really getting momentum and we had a lot of clients that were coming on board, you know, every month, we got to this point where you just look at the revenue model, you know, how much money is coming in and how much money we're paying the freelancers. We're in great shape. We have six months before we even need to think about getting investors or, you know, uh, doing anything, leveling up the business. But then when we looked at cash flow, because we were paying the freelancers up front, we realized we had two weeks left before we were out of business and we panicked and, and we we're like, well, let's like not take any salaries. And it was Christmas time. And, you know, we're like, we can't go on vacation. What are we going to do? Business is going under. And we ended up uh, pulling out of that in part because we started asking some of our clients that they'd be willing to pay us up front. Since we pay the freelancers, could they pay us up front? And, you know, most of the clients said, well, we don't pay individual contractors, but since you're a vendor and you're pooling, you know, the 20 contractors that we're working with, sure. So that saved us. But eventually we had to get a real, you know, financial model to make sure that that kind of thing didn't happen again. I think it was about 18 months in. Uh, no, let's see. If we, we put the, because we count um, the actual launch of the business in the summer after. So we, we quit into, you know, December 10th was the day I wrote the thing on my Tumblr that was like, we're doing this. Um, it was June that next year that we, uh, it was like, this is a real business. No more side projects. Like we're really going for it. Um, and it was the, you know, actually I think it was that Christmas. So it was one wow. year. Yeah. That, so uh, do, that happened. do you remember when you guys officially burned the boats and said, we are all of us, 100% into this. Do you remember what the revenue level was like at that point, what it was producing on a month in month out basis? Yeah. Were you still kind of fingers are still kind of crossed? Uh, what do you I, remember? I remember we had, we were pitching investors because um, we'd, we'd shown enough proof of traction that we thought we could get some investment and we could, you know, then make some investments, hire some people, build some stuff and really go for it without having to worry about the, being profitable for a while. And I remember the investor deck saying something like we've been growing a hundred percent every month, but it was like month one was a thousand dollars. Month two was 2000. Month three was 4,000. <laughs> so even though it's like, you know, four or five months in where it's like, we're at $16,000 a month, hundred percent growth every month for five months, $16,000 is not that much. And also that's the top line number. It's, you know, 13,000 of that is going to freelancers. So Joe, Dave, and I are splitting the other 3000 a month, and we want to hire an intern. You know, so it, it was pretty dire. I think we're around that number when we, we first raised money, a little bit of money from an accelerator, Techstars. So they give you, I forget how much it is, 30 grand or something, and free office space. So for three months, that kept us afloat. You know, we each took like $1,500, and then we hired a person, a you know, developer. And then... Uh, after the end of Techstars, we raised some more money and we were able to pay ourselves like $3,000 a month and hire a bunch of people. And then that went on until it was the next round when we finally were able to like really feel like it was okay to, you know, to pay ourselves a salary. But it was, yeah, it was, it was some hard times. I mean, I was living on credit cards for a lot of my expenses and Dave was on what was left of his student loan. 
Joe, Joe was doing okay because he had had another business that was very successful, but it still wasn't, you know, it's not easy to burn cash. You know, New York rent is a lot. But yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> the first few years are always obviously uh, a grind. And there, there's, you guys had initial, like right out of the gates, that validation. Maybe you didn't have all the economic modeling squared away, but at least from a pain point standpoint, you absolutely had validation um, from both freelancers and brands that this needed to exist. And early on, it was largely a marketplace. It became more of a, uh, a traditional platform for the freelancers, right? To help them run their businesses and not just meet other brands that you can write for. Um, so the, the big funding came in, in 2014. I think you got 9 million from an, an numerous investors. Um, was, I guess it would be easy to say um, that 9 million makes you feel like, all right, we got this figured out. But what was life really like around that time when you were landing that investment and how did it change you know, from one month to the next when you're in negotiations versus you now have the funding you need? What was life like at Contently around then? Yeah, I think that we, we, every time we raised money, we managed to do it on a little bit of a gamble from the investors that we raised it from. Which is why they they got a good piece of the company. They got a good deal too because they're taking a bit of a leap. Um, but you know, uh, we knew enough companies that had an easier time doing that. Where it's it's like you have more than one option or more than two options of who wants to invest in you. That we felt like we weren't doing a good enough job validating the business. And it always felt like that. And I think maybe we're also being hard on ourselves. Um, we managed to raise money within a good time period every time we tried to do it. But there was that you're right that that was a big moment for us of where we we had enough money in the bank between you know whatever January and February whenever we raised the money that we could actually pay our employees market rate salaries and that we could actually pay ourselves close to market rate salaries and that we knew we have a, at least a couple of years to really aggressively spend money on this business before we have to worry about that financial stress again. That was really good because then we could actually start working on fulfilling our dream with the business more than uh, you know having one constant thought on how are we going to make or raise money to pay the bills at the same time. It's splitting your focus right on, on building the machine versus trying to you know keep the garage that the machine lives in from getting repossessed, whatever the <laughs> right. be. So that really changed a lot. It uh, when I look back on it, it's a little different than when you're in it in the thick of things. It's like for that like three-day period after we closed the investment, we're like, yes, everything's great. And then on day four, we're like, oh, no, everything's falling apart. This is so stressful. Time to give up my weekend again. But looking back, it, it did make a big difference sort of lifestyle-wise and seeing, you know, the, it's like that climate change graph where every year it goes up and down based on the seasons, but it's always going up, you know, of the, the carbon levels or whatever. It's like when I look back, I'm like, it's always been going up. It's been great. In the moment, it's like week to week, it's up and down. Yeah, yeah, emotions with it as well. I'm sure. Obviously, your your future prognosis of the company's health probably changes from month to month, given any uh, setback or adversity. You know, you you blow it up in the moment, and then maybe you settle down after the fact. I'm uh, I assume uh, that that's the case. But and you went on to obviously uh, take on additional funding as well. Uh, you look over the last five years since that round, um, and. You, your status is as chairman now, so you're not you're not involved in every decision that's being made. Um, over the last five years, how has Contently evolved, and how did your role 
evolve? How did it need to evolve from the guy who felt the pain and you were an ideal customer uh, for the platform and, and you were serving that audience to the guy who needs to now anticipate needs, not only for that audience, but to hedge off competitors um, and other marketplaces that may seem quite uh, different in a lot of ways, but are competing for similar. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So how did your role change? How did, how did it change your view on how you should spend your time you know, as the company evolved over those, the, the next four or five years? Yeah. Well, uh, there's a lot there to the answer to that question, but the, the reality of this is your job changes very frequently when you are running a company, when you're a founder of a company. At a certain point, I, I say this a lot, at a certain point I went from a guy who does things to a guy who hires people and helps them do things and helps them you know, not fight and helps them like, make good problem solving together and all that. And that was a, that was a, a big transition for me and, uh, and I really enjoyed that. And I, I ended up writing a lot about it, including a book about uh, teamwork. Um, using journalism as an excuse to get better. But with that, what got layered on top of that pretty quickly after I became team leader as my main identity within the company is uh, also this uh, kind of strategic get the company to grow that next step function. And at a certain point, you know, in the last few years, and each of us, founders, you know, in our own divisions and the company overall, we were facing that kind of plateau. And, uh, you know, the decision of, am I going to be able to figure out how to evolve into this type of person too? I've already evolved into the team, you know, leader uh, person. Am I now going to evolve, evolve from the uh, entrepreneur to the operator and, you know, scaling agent? And I decided for me that that was not going to happen um, for as as well as hiring someone to do that. You know, so we hired a CMO. We actually just uh, a month and a half ago hired a, a CEO who came from Time Inc. She, she sold Time Inc. to Meredith for you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, billions maybe, I don't even know. Um, but she has this long track record in uh, media and tech businesses and is absolutely someone that will take us from this point to you know, 10 times bigger much more quickly and with less agony than we would as founders. So that transition of, and then, you know, to your question, what does your role, be, your role become? I, I've periodically done this exercise of what's the Venn diagram overlap between what I can uniquely do for this organization in this industry and what I actually want to be doing. And, you know, for a while, what I actually want to be doing actually doesn't matter because like, I got to do it because we're the founders. We're the only ones here where, you know, but when the company's in good financial position, it's about you know going bigger. Well, what can I uniquely do now that we have a great CEO, we have heads of marketing and, and all these things doing the job I used to do better. And uh, the couple of things that in my case, I've decided they are one is the evangelism for the company and you know, the industry and the right way to do things in the industry as someone who has built up this reputation from being there early on and establishing our presence in the market. So going and speaking at conferences, doing interviews, um, and, uh, and basically writing thought leadership about what should be happening in the space. That is something that has a lot more weight when it comes from a founder of a company. And then another thing is kind of the morale and culture of the company which I really like being able to be a board member uh, because, uh, well, also the company, the office moved literally around the corner from me. So I'm, I'm very close. I can get coffee with anyone, um, you know, 
once a week, a couple times a week, I'll meet for half an hour with a random person from the company, talk to them about their career, how things are going, get a little insight, but provide moral support. Today, a couple of people, there's a going away party for a couple of employees that have been here for a long time. So I'm going to go to the going away party and showing up in that aspect as like, you know, the person who helped found this company almost a decade ago matters to people a lot in a way that like everyone wants the CEO, the new CEO to be there. But it's like, oh, the founders are here too. That's great. So those kinds of things um, are what I've really turned into. And then to your point, strategically, having been in this for a long time, there is a lot of uh, institutional knowledge that I and my partners have and pattern recognition that we have that we actually, because of writing that way, have a lot to say on some of the big decisions of, uh, you know, how should we continue to evolve this company? Maybe not how to actually do it, the details, sure. but where we should go. So, um, fa- fascinating. Y- you said something that I kind of want to maybe start to hit, get, approach the runway <laughs> for this, for the conversation today, um, with that I thought was extremely important. Differentiating, uh, a SaaS platform in these days is extremely challenging because people are even, um, lauded for their ability to come up with a SaaS platform and launch it in two weeks, you know, and, and, uh, so no matter, no matter how you slice it, there, there, there's all kinds of, uh, uh, security issues or whatever, you know, that, that they should have built into these platforms. But the point is somebody can build a platform tomorrow. That's a marketplace for freelancers. The, the way you contribute to the industry, it takes it to a higher level and how you personally have infused what's important to you into contently, um, I think is fascinating. Uh, versus, say, a Fiverr, for example. And what I'm what I'm alluding to is the Contently Foundation. Then, you know, or what turned into the Hatch Institute. Can you tell me why did why was it so important to you that the Hatch Institute existed? I know it wasn't that name that at, at the beginning, but why did that need to exist? And um, why was that uh, a, a part of Contently versus just a personal pursuit that you had? Yeah. Um... So the, the underlying principle is that, to me, is that if you actually care about the business and the industry and the impact you're having on people, that uh, counts for a lot in a competitive environment. And it also makes it easier to come to work. So we built this business. We created this thing because we care. Um, but a lot of times, you know, people don't know how much you care. you got to show it. And so we, throughout the history of the company, we tried to infuse in our marketing, in you know, what we're putting out on the internet, our point of view on why this stuff mattered, how to do it the right way. But one of the things that was core to why we cared about you know, good content and getting journalists paid and, you know, you know, a big principle, I don't really talk about it much here, but a big principle behind what we do at Contently is this idea that if as a business you can help or delight your customers before you ask them to give you money, that is a really a lot better experience and a better experience on the internet than bombarding people with pop-ups and, you know, ads and tricking them and all that. So we said, you know, make the world a little bit of a better place by being a giver as a, as a business. And that's, that's what the whole content marketing thing is about. One of the things that we noticed when we looked around though, after a few years is we're helping freelancers put food on the table. We're helping businesses behave a little better as marketers and, uh, and be successful. But there's this class of content of media that's really important for the world that is we were not really involved in and that's investigative journalism so the kind of thing where a reporter goes and figures out that there's corruption going on in the mayor's office and they write that story and so we kick the mayor out or whatever or 
so-and-so is polluting the water or there's, you know, we did, um, and one of the projects we actually did with our foundation that grew out of this was, you know, gun trafficking pipeline, guns from Kentucky illegally coming into New York City um, and the victims along the way. Stories like that take a lot of uh, time and money and they're risky. And they're not something that as a marketer, you're really going to do. You know, if you're American Express, you're not doing that story about corruption or gun trafficking or whatever. Like, you're not. Um, But the newspapers that used to do those stories are running out of money. They're having a harder time. So we thought that a way that we could do some social responsibility as a company that's making money in content is we could start a foundation. We called it initially the Contently Foundation. Changed the name to the Hatch Institute. Kind of uh, separated the the brands. Um, But we thought we could fund important stories that were good for the world that, uh, um, that couldn't be funded otherwise. And we could also train uh, emerging investigative journalists and how to do this stuff right, how to do the right interviews, how to find these stories that the people need to hear but aren't necessarily profitable. So when we did that, we were worried. And, and so basically we said, we're going to put some of our, our profits into this foundation every month. And when we did that, we were worried that our investors would say, hey, you're running on investment. What are you doing with this do-gooder stuff? Come on. But instead, they they actually gave the opposite reaction. They said, and we know that you guys are doing this because you care, but this is the best publicity we could get. You know, our competitors aren't doing stuff like this. Like they're they're nickel and diming just like we are. They're not, there's no way they're gonna spend tens of thousands of dollars on um, you know, investigative journalism. And I, mean, I think that did give us a lot of credibility because it was a bit of a sacrifice. Um, and uh, you know, I, I'm doing more now that I'm I'm just you know, a board member at Contently, I'm doing more now for the foundation than I was before helping raise money and all that. Uh, but that was something that also helped us remind ourselves as we're seeing what's going on in the foundation internally, <clears throat> we're doing something that matters and you know, we're building this business, but we're also making a difference. And, and that feels good to be part of, but it also, it's hard to do that and not be for a long time and not have it actually be authentic and that authenticity shines through and that, that does help your business. So it, it all feeds together. Well, I, and I, I see it as a, an extension of who you are and your values more than I see it as an extension of contently, to be honest with you. I, I think there, there's the nice, there's the, the, the nice tie in there, obviously, uh, that you, you were obviously quick to point out. Um, but it, many organizations have causes they feel the founders feel important, uh, are important and you see those infused into the brand. And so like REI or Patagonia or brands like that, that you'll see great blog posts or content or uh, multimedia content even that's published that espouses their values, but it's still branded content. And I think it speaks a lot, even when it was Contently Foundation, but um, I think it speaks a lot to how important this is to you that it's its own freestanding uh, institute, that it's its own freestanding nonprofit uh, organization. I think that's... uh, that's just my commentary. No question Thank there, by the you. way. I think it's just fantastic. Thank you. I appreciate uh, that. Yeah, it's uh, we're we're not getting as much kind of selfish benefit from it as when it was named after us. And I think I agree. I think that makes it actually a bigger deal to me. Yeah, certain peace of mind that comes from that anyway. But Shane, uh, you've been generous with your time. I want to before I let you go, I do have three final one-off questions that I'm going to ask you, but. Thank you so much for how much you've shared about Contently, about you and why Contently needed to exist. I think that um, that backstory is just as important as the how-tos. 
Um, and it's frankly, it's more interesting. <laughs> uh, and so I appreciate you being willing to share so much that you've shared. But again, won't let you go unless I take you through our final segment that we call three in one. Um, because sometimes it, it, some of the, the most amazing gems for me personally, uh, thinking somewhat selfishly have come from these, the answers to these questions. So I haven't prepared you for them and I doubt that you know what they are. So with that, I want to dive into our final three in one segment. You ready? All right. So it's three questions and I'm asking for one thing from you for each of these questions and you can keep it short and that would be fine. But the first one is one principle or value that you believe in that most people don't. I would say set aside time to do things that have nothing to do with what you're working on. I think most people believe in focus. I believe that you get more from exploring things outside of your area, your field, your zone that you can then use to inspire thinking a little differently about what you are working on. Mm, I like that a lot. Thank you. All right. Number two is uh, the second question is, is one behavior or habit that you try to stick to no matter your circumstances, where you are and, and so forth? One behavior or habit? I don't know if this is exactly, this maybe more like a philosophy, um, but I, I like the philosophy that people are more important than stuff. It's a mantra that I like to say to myself, no matter what's going on, if I prioritize people, I think in the end, things probably work out better, but I feel better about what I'm doing than if I don't. So a friend needs help and I'm doing something that might be important work-wise, I will choose the person over the work. Or, you know, someone breaks something, I will choose the person over getting mad at them because I cared about that thing they broke. Love it. All right, last one. One person that you take your cues from or maybe even aspire, uh, aspire to be like? The one that always comes to mind when I think of a historical character is Ben Franklin. Because he was this, uh, you know, there's a lot of, you know, I don't ever, not everything from Ben Franklin, but, uh, he was a math, science, art, politics, like all of these different things kind of guy. And as this um, kind of polymath, he, I think, made a lot of really interesting um, innovations in society and inventions because he explored all those areas to that first uh, question that I answered. And also, I like... Uh, I like some of the habits that he had for himself for personal development. So I, I take sort of my cues on developing as a writer and on journaling and some of those things directly from kind of what he taught in his autobiography. Yeah, that, that was uh, the 13 virtues, I think, uh, were a key part of them as well. That's a good one. Shane, thank you so much. Contently, the Hatch Institute, Dream Teams, um, Storytelling Edge, and what is it? Uh, Smart Cuts. That's right. These uh, these are the these are the the multitude of of avenues where somebody can encounter you, your work, and uh, whether it's business oriented or philosophy oriented. And and um, again, thank you so much for opening your mind and sharing your ideas with us and telling your story. That was Mr. Shane Snow, founder of Contently.com. He's not only built something special in Contently, I feel like he's doing his part to maintain 
the important role of investigative journalism in a free society through his work at the Hatch Institute. All right, next week's episode is an experiment. We're getting creative with the show in order to properly tell you the story behind Quilt from co-founders Ashley Sumner and Gianna Wirtz. Theirs is a community unlike any other. And I say that with no exaggeration. Quilt empowers women to open up their homes to other women for co-working and education sessions and get paid for it. It's an opportunity to be in a space that inspires them. They're growing their community, but they're also having a really productive workday. Beautiful collaborations can come. In an age when everything is digital, these two millennials have encouraged a movement that is massively changing lives through in-home gatherings of strangers. Check them out at wearequilt.com and please tune into their story next week. All right, thank you to my co-producer, Preston Lee, founder of Milo and the admin of the Milo Mastermind community on Facebook, as well as our assistant, Bilal Abrar, for help putting this episode together. And of course, to our friends at the Podglomerate Network. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll catch you next week on Freelance to Founder. <laughs>